gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman Golden Age Superman The Superman Fan Podcast Superman in the Bronze Age From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast The New 52 Adventures of Superman I've got a few things to say about Superman The Carousel Podcast The Superman Vidcast The World's Best Podcast And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com Join hosts Michael Bradley John Wilson Billy Hogan Charlie Niemeyer J. David Weeder Jeffrey Taylor Michael Bailey Scott Gardner Danny Sapp Cayman Stoll I'm Isaac I'm Adam Dave Yunus and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com Superman teams up with Batgirl to check out a haunted house and Superboy sells out today on Superman in the Bronze Age Hello everybody and welcome to episode 59 of Superman in the Bronze Age, the first part of our coverage of Spooky Month in honor of October being the month of Halloween. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today we've got two stories featuring Superman and Superboy in, well, spooky stories. But before we get to any of that stuff, first, I do need to let you know that this episode is sponsored by InStockTrades.com, a mainstay of the collected edition market InStockTrades has over 13,000 individual trade paperbacks, graphic novels, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship, all at great discounted prices, with most orders shipping within 48 hours and orders over $50 shipping for free. So make sure you go and check them out at www.instocktrades.com. Next up, before we get into the stories, is our Facebook. Uh, as you may recall, if you happened to download last episode, um, I didn't do a new quest. I didn't do a new super question due to the fact that, well, I couldn't really come up with one. But I actually had more responses to last time's super question, which was your favorite Superman imaginary story. So, let me pull that up real quick. And our news responses are from people you've heard of before. First up is Billy Hogan from Superman Fan Podcast and a recent guest on this show, as well as the artist on the comic book I co- on the web comic I color called Slipstream. Billy Hogan writes that his favorite imaginary story is the original Death of Superman written by Jerry Siegel which is a good a good story. Uh, Jeffrey Taylor, who has also been a recent guest on this show and 
also writes Slipstream, uh, says that his favorite is Superman Volume 1, number 215, from 1969. And I haven't looked that up, but I'm sure it's imaginary. And we have Alan Leach Jr., who says that his favorite imaginary story is the original Superman Red, Superman Blue. All right. Um, I guess it's time for the new super question. The next super question is, what is your favorite spooky Superman story from any time period? Um, some of the ones I can think of are they're from Crisis to Crisis recently covered a two-part story featuring a vampire uh, just shortly before super, the death of and return of Superman. Uh, I know that Jeff Loeb did a vampire story. There's the stories we'll be covering this month on this show. And I'm sure there's plenty more I just can't think of off the top of my head. So please, um, respond. you can respond by either emailing us at superbronze1970 at gmail.com or by responding to the question as posted on the group page or the fan page on Facebook. And with all of that out of the way, we're going to play a couple promos, and when we come back, our first story. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. The internet is really, really great. For Guy Gardner Podcast. I've got a fast connection, so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneoftheguys.lips.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Internet is for internet is for internet is for just one of the guys dot libson dot com. Just one of the guys does not officially certify that this podcast is more enjoyable than pornography. Sawate. My name is Stella and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. 
please visit us online at badgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Our first story this month was from DC Comics Presents number 19, which had a cover date of March 1980 and an on-sale date of December 3rd, 1979. Neither of which makes you think that it would be a good time to put in a spooky story in a comic book. This issue had a cover price of just 40 cents. That's right, four dimes, and you could have bought this. And this is, of course, the team-up you demanded, Superman and Batgirl. And the cover is by Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano, and it shows Superman ripping open some kind of obelisk and being told that he's going to be struck down with the curse of Horus as a bird guy in a suit uh, hits Superman with some kind of beam. And in the background, Batgirl swings down as if to say, I'm here. The title of this story is Who Haunts This House? Written by Denny O'Neill, penciled by Joe Staten, inked by Frank Schiermonte, lettered by Milt Snappen, colorist was Jerry Serpe, and the editor, of course, was Julie Schwartz. Now, our story begins about six months ago, when Caleb Girk was wandering through a western desert when all of a sudden a Victorian-style house just appeared out of nowhere. Flash forward six months to the present, or the then-present, I guess, where Clark Kent and Barbara Gordon spot each other as they visit the same mysterious house for some kind of party. Clark then starts interviewing Girk and learns that Girk sold off a whole bunch of the gold and valuables inside the house and is now quite wealthy, even wealthy enough to hire a helicopter to make sure to get lots of pictures for Clark's news organization. At least that's what Girk says. Speaking of the helicopter, Barbara points out that the helicopter's acting quite strange just as it begins to dive straight for the house. With no time to make an excuse to leave, Clark just runs off at super speed, moving so quickly that no one can see him change to Superman. After he flies up and redirects the chopper to a safe landing, the confused pilot admits that he doesn't know what came over him. He just looked at the house and suddenly he wanted to kill, even if it meant killing himself in the process. While Girk redirects... No. While Girk directs everyone inside, Clark returns in time to ask Barbara why she's there. She says that things haven't been going very well for her lately, including losing the last congressional election. So she figured that a vacation might do her some good. Inside the house, Clark and Babs are busy checking out a strange obelisk in the middle of the foyer, which not even Clark's X-ray vision can penetrate, when another guest decides that he's still not happy with the helicopter pilot and whacks him upside the head with a candelabra hurting the pilot enough that he needs to get to a hospital fast. Unfortunately, the nearest one is about 50 miles away. Fortunately, and again with no excuses from Clark, Superman just shows up inside the house, and Clark disappears. No one knows why. And offers to take the pilot to the hospital himself. As he flies off with the pilot, he promises Girk that he will return, partially because Girk invites him to, and but mostly because... Two senseless acts of violence in five minutes adds up to a problem that's likely to continue. Back inside, the guests, who now notice a chill in the air, sit down to eat, but instead of wine, their glasses have been filled with blood. This upsets one guest enough that he puts Girk in a headlock, choking him while the other guests look on with a savage glee. 
But Babs is able to break them in apart, at which point the guest seems to snap back to reality, not knowing what came over him. Babs decides that she's had enough and retires to her room, where she decides to change to Batgirl and investigate just what is going on in the house. But before she can even get out of the room, she hears Girk screaming for help. When Batgirl returns to the dining room, the guests have turned into an angry mob, shouting that they want to kill Girk, and they have him cornered at one side of the room. When Batgirl tries to calm them all down, they decide that, you know what, maybe they should kill her, too. So she slowly fights her way across the room to Girk. Once she gets to him, they slowly make their way out of the dining room. Looking for a place to hide, they run upstairs to a room with a heavy oak door that should slow the others down. Inside, Girk takes the time to relate his theory that the reason that the two of them haven't become part of the angry mob is that her drive to help people, and his loneliness, are allowing them to fight off whatever is affecting the others. Batgirl hopes he's right, because at this point, she's feeling an urge to throttle him to death. Meanwhile outside, Superman has finally returned to find that the house has vanished. After not being able to find it underground, uh, and he do- checks for it by drilling all the way to Earth's core without any ill effects, despite Superman 242, he uses his infrared vision and sees a shimmering shape of the house. So he flies into it and finds himself inside the mind of a Dr. Horace, a man of great genius with the head of a hawk. Monologuing, he reveals that a century ago his neighbors grew alarmed at his researches, such as the one that changed his head into that of a hawk, and sealed him up inside the house. But he survived by placing both himself and the house in suspended animation, which he did by pulling himself in the house into his mind. He returned six months ago to check out how the earth has changed, didn't like what he saw, and decided just a few minutes ago to withdraw again, but since he can't he still can't comprehend his powers, he wasn't able to completely close the gap between the desert and his mind dimension. So Superman heads to the house, which Dr. Horace tries to prevent by hitting the Man of Steel with a full force of nature's fury. But this is Superman we're talking about here. I mean, it has no effect. Inside the house, the mob has finally broken through the door to the room where Batgirl and Girk are. They try to fight back, but there are just too many of them. Fortunately, Superman arrives just in time to pick them up and fly them out of the house. Then they all make a return trip to the foyer, as Superman explains that the mob is being controlled telepathically by Dr. Horace. After they land, Superman rips the obelisk open, freeing the Doctor, after figuring that since the Doctor was sealed in the house, and the obelisk was the only thing that his X-ray vision couldn't penetrate, that that had to be where he was. So he gets Dr. Horace to return the house and the people inside back to the real world. Once they return, Girk and Batgirl find that Superman and Dr. Horace have disappeared, and the other guests wake up as if from some kind of a nap, not knowing what they'd been doing. At this point, Clark shows up, stating that he was exploring the cellar and was hoping to interview Batgirl, while, via Thought Bubble, he reveals that the Doctor chose to remain in his mind dimension. And that's where the story ends. Um, not too many notes this time. Um, page two, we see all these people walking up to the house, but we don't know how they got there. The helicopter's still in the sky, uh, supposedly for pictures, not anything else. But there's no cars, or vehicles, or anything to indicate how these people got there, and it's supposed to be in the middle of a western desert, so I don't think they walked. 
So I don't know where that came from. Page 8. The cool thing about having Batgirl in the story, other than, you know, Batgirl, is that she's allowed to punch women as well as men. So equal opportunity KOs. It's really cool. And on page 14, I kind of like this. It's not too often that the Superman, at least not of this era, actually goes a bad guy into attacking him and then saying, ha-ha, it doesn't have any effect on me. I'm just going to keep going. But it sure was cool to see him do it, even if it's a little out of character. Overall, I thought this was a fun story. Um, if I was just casually reading it, I, it would probably be awesome. Well, not awesome, but great. Or, well, it would be pretty good. But because I'm going over it with a fine-tooth comb for this show, uh, there's some things that kind of stick out a little bit. For one thing, Clark disappears twice without any kind of excuse, but no one questions it at all. No one even, not even a throwaway, hey, where'd Clark go type of line. Just gone. Secondly, as I mentioned for a few times back when World's Finest was a Superman team-up book and I was covering it every episode, I don't like stories in which the team-up we are promised really doesn't occur. In this case, Batman and... Batman. Wow. almost said Batman and Supergirl. Batgirl and Superman don't actually team up at all. They appear together on the last few pages, but that's it. There's no actual teaming up. Um, as I related in the story, Superman shows up and stops the helicopter. He takes the guy to the hospital. Batgirl shows up and saves, uh, saves Girk. And then Superman fights Horus. Superman saves Batgirl and Girk. And then takes care of Gert, or and then takes care of Horus, so they don't really team up at all. Uh, and next, th- here's a quick question for you: Even if mental powers like Doctor Horus's were real, how do you pull yourself into your own mind? Just think about that for a minute. I'll wait. <laughs> done? Alright, good. Moving on. The art is okay, but not my favorite. Joe Staten is not my favorite artist, but Sheramonte's inks make it a little more bearable. Uh, Speaking of the inks, uh, by this point, Sheramonte had been inking over Kurt Swan in the main Superbooks for about a year or two now, so he knew how Superman was supposed to look. Uh, Similar to what was done to Jack Kirby's art back on Jimmy Olsen, in this issue, it appears the faces on Clark and Superman were inked to look a lot more like Kurt Swan's take on the character than Staten. Granted, it's not as jarring as it was with Kirby because, well, Staten and, well, first of, first of all, Sheramonte's inking the whole thing so he can kind of blend the style some. And two, Staten's artwork is a little closer to Swan's than Kirby's was to, like, Murphy Anderson. Um, and the only reason I notice it is because no one else's face looks swanish. Everyone else looks very much Staten. Um, I'm not sure if this was a Julie Schwartz mandate or if it was just what 
Frank Shermonte decided to do or what was going on, but I know they were very protective of the look of Superman's face back in these back in these days. So it could have been any either way. But that's going to do it for the Superman portion of the show. When we, retur- when we return, J. David Weeder will present a spooky Superboy story. Ooh. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Answering this question, what does great justice mean to you? Great justice means winning all the internets. Pirates beating ninja. Death to those who deserve it. <laughs> the bad guys always get the fangirls. <laughs> That's a great injustice. <laughs> Free cosplay everywhere. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. The right people getting the right things. Free popsicles and licorice for life. Find the meaning for yourself at Henshin Justice Unlimited. Tokusatsu, anime, Power Rangers, video games, and all manner of things geek. All gathered in one place. www.henshinjustice.com Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com we now return to superman and the bronze age the adventures of superboy exciting stories of superman when he was a boy who even as an infant demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of earthlings superboy who as clark kent mild-mannered foster son of martha and jonathan kent preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Welcome back to Superboy in the Bronze Age. I'm J. David Weeder, bringing you the tales of a younger Clark Kent from the Bronze Age era. In keeping with the spooky story theme of the month, I pulled out The New Adventures of Superboy issue 21 from September 1981, an issue that you would have actually picked up on stands on June 18th of the same year. It features a cover penciled by Kurt Schaffenberger with inker Dave Hunt, which shows Superboy standing in a dark swamp with a ghostly form coming at him, and the teen of Steel thinks a phantom creature who turns living things to stone, but I'll stop it or end up as a Superboy statue. And that is representative of the story we're looking at today, which is the first story in this issue, The Day Superboy Sold Out. Written by Carrie Bates, penciled by Schaffenberger, inked by Hunt, lettered by Todd Klein, and colors by Jerry Serpy. And poor Clark Kent, he has to run the Kent General Store for the day as Jonathan is down with the flu and Martha refuses to leave her husband's side. The day is so rough that even Clark has a hard time keeping up, but he finally reaches near closing time when an out-of-towner enters the store needing antacids after sampling the Franken-beans at a local diner. The man who identifies himself as Huey B. McKay is in town to seek out Superboy in order to sign a deal with the Teen of Steel to do good deeds exclusively for pay. To charity, less his 10% fee, of course. 
McKay points out some posters hanging around town for the Superboy fireworks display, and he declares that he will have Superboy signing an exclusive contract at the show that night, not realizing, of course, that Clark Kent is actually Superboy himself. And that night, Superboy flies to the sky with fireworks strapped to himself and shoots them off, making a spectacular display for the crowd, so spectacular that nobody notices a strange gaseous form, and yes, that's directly from the text, plummeting to Earth and into nearby Crystal Lake. That's spooky, isn't it, Crystal Lake? We all know what happens there. And after his firework display, Superboy meets up with Huey McKay, who pitches Superboy on his concept, and is shocked to find that Superboy signs the contract. And nobody is more shocked than Superboy himself when he returns home. He doesn't even remember what prompted him to sign. Speaking of surprises, at Crystal Lake, a pair of fishermen are surprised to find that the fish they caught has just turned to stone. Back in Smallville the next day, Huey visits Clark at the general store, and even he is shocked that Superboy signed the contract. Luckily, Clark records their conversation. A lot of shocking stuff happening. Simultaneously, two Boy Scouts spot a phantom-like figure rising from Crystal Lake, and then he pulls out a machete, puts on a hockey mask, and slashes them up. No, wait, actually, it just rises from the lake and the boys run away frightened. Clark analyzes the recording of Huey McKay's voice and discovers a nearly hypnotic power and shortly sees one of the two Boy Scouts telling his dad about the, at the monster as he's going to pick up Pa's medicines at the pharmacy. With his x-ray vision, he sees that the boy is telling the truth because his heart is not beating faster and flies to Crystal Lake to investigate finding petrified trees and then the phantom himself. The monster is intangible and passes right through Superboy, which leaves a psychic impression that the creature is hungry, but Superboy doesn't know what kind of food it needs, and he really can't help because the phantom is, well, intangible. But, to, but Superboy gets an idea and flies off to talk to Huey McKay, asking him to sell him on something. After that, Superboy finds the creature and is able to use his new power of changing into a wraith form, thanks to the hypnotic impression of Huey McKay, and is able to get the phantom back into space where the creature feeds on ultraviolet radiation and leaves the Earth alone. With the day saved, Superboy goes to talk with Huey McKay, who has received the news that Superboy's contract is invalid thanks to the inability to prove the alien's age in court. Using his x-ray vision, Superboy sees that the handwriting is Pa Kent's, but he is free of the contract and Huey McKay leaves town wrapping up our tale. So, let's get into this. Let's jump back to the beginning with the cover. You know, it does evoke a far creepier vibe than what the story would bring, and it displays a villain who isn't even in the book that much. But the blue actually caught my eye because it is a darker Superboy image than expected. And we get a nice frontispiece on page one, which would draw a kid in or, you know, a 35-year-old man reading the story for a podcast segment. Just saying. On page two, we have some exposition with a delivery man at the general store where we learn that Pa is sick and Clark is manning the store. And the best part is when the delivery man is leaving, he feels guilty for leaving the frail, delicate Clark Kent who pretty much has already put the delivery on the shelves before the delivery guy can finish closing the truck door. On page three, the sequence of Clark running the store is great because even a Superboy has issues when dealing with the public. Anybody that has dealt with the public knows what I'm talking about. And McKay arrives with a stomachache from eating Franks and beans. Dude, you didn't see that coming, Huey? Why can't he just sell himself that he doesn't have a stomachache? That would be kind of cool. And I'm amused that Clark actually mixed the antacid, like a little soda jerk. And I guess that fits the time frame, because if this was coming out in the 80s, then this would have been uh, about the late 60s, somewhere in there. But he doesn't just point Huey to the shelves for the Alka-Seltzer like we would see today. Uh, Jumping to page 6, a Superboy fireworks show. 
So let me get this straight. Rather than doing a patrol or checking in on Paw, Superboy takes the time to do a fireworks show. I don't get that, but okay, made me giggle. Superboy speeds through autographs on page 7, which would make a great post-concert meet and greet for rock stars. Boom, 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 two seconds and you're done. And I did not like the Kents admonishing Clark for signing the contract because, well, dude, you can't bust the kid's chops. He's clearly done something out of character, and you should be reading the signs that something is up instead of really just giving him a guilt trip. Although I'll blame that on Pa Kent's fever. On page 9, a random note, people fish a lot in and around Smallville, because we saw that with the Aqua Boy issue. And Boy Scouts seem to be the ones who discover horrific monsters a lot. And hey, guess what? The Boy Scouts are there to do some fishing. Um, now my, my main note, the, the main brunt of this, actually spans the entire third act, the rest of the, of the story, to be honest, from pages 14 to 16. Um, let me get this straight. Superboy uses McKay's hypnotic power to grant him a one-time power of some form of tangible intangibility, which doesn't make sense in itself. It does... Well, I guess what my question is, is does this mean that as long as Superboy is convinced he has a power, he does? He just has to believe in the power? Or is McKay's power to kind of warp reality? And why do we have three plots going on that really don't ever gel? Because we have Pa being sick, we have the Space Phantom, and McKay. And none of them really get a fair shake, and each one of them, to some extent, really could have stood on their own as a as a shorter 10 to 12 page story. You know, Clark running the general store could have been a funny one, but we get three panels, which was, you know, maybe maybe not a short change on that front. But, you know, the Phantom and, the, and McKay don't necessarily mix. And it just fizzled out for me at that point in the story, and it never recovered. And so this story ended up being neither spooky nor whimsical, it was just flat. And I almost forgot about it as soon as I closed the book, except I had to remind myself, like, oh, yeah, I still have to write this up and, and record this. So I went back, and, and in some meta form, this particular segment is a result of that. Weird. But we always have next time. For now, I'm sending you back to my own Huey McKay, Mr. Charlie in Charge, Niemeyer. All right, thanks, David. And that's going to wrap things up for another episode. Make sure to come back in just two short weeks for more super spookiness. In the meantime, be sure to check David's other shows, Pad Smash and Incredible Hulk Podcast, over at IncredibleHulkSmash.com. He also does New 52 Adventures of Superman at New52Superman.Libson.com, Green Lantern's Light at greatcrypton.com slash greenlantern and superman forever radio at supermanforeverradio.tumblr.com and also check, uh, listen for me I'm going to have an appearance on the next episode of Golden Age Superman hosted by John Wilson which is at goldenagesuperman.lipson.com and that will be posted whenever John gets around to posting it uh, things like you know kids and uh, school and work uh, sometimes are, have gotten in the way of his releases so there's not really a time frame on this, but considering he's already got the episode after mine already recorded, I'm thinking it won't be too far out. So thank you all again for listening, and we'll see you next time. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. The home of the show is at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com, where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted, and on Stitcher Smart Radio. 
Superman of the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will not only find postings for this show, but also for many other Superman-related podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you for listening, and God bless. show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio.